please pray with me as we begin. Father, I ask for your guidance and your wisdom. I ask you to open our ears and open our hearts to your truth. Convict us of where we are wayward, where we are not following you as we should, and open our um, open us up to live in new ways of obedience um, and to, to accept Christ as um, our way of life and to follow him with our entire lives. Pray for this in his name. Amen. So on March 30th, 1920, that was 100 years ago, a soldier in Syria was digging a trench and he happened upon a smartwatch. Uh, no, I'm kidding. He happened upon some ancient stone that once he uncovered turned out to be uh, walls with amazingly preserved paintings on them. That'd be pretty cool. You're out there building a trench for the military and you find art. And this is some of the, a sample of some of the art that he found. Uh, scientists nearby were alerted and very quickly French and American teams uh, of archaeologists uncovered more over the next decade and they identified it with the ancient city called Dura Europis. Uh, so within that city, they found a Christian house church. It was a home that was converted to a church, which dates to around at the latest 250 AD. So about 200 years after a lot of the events that we see um, in the book of Acts and the writings of the Gospels. So on the walls of this church, they found depictions of Jesus and other biblical characters. So here you see Moses on the left at the burning bush. Um, he's doing kind of like the Vanna White, like here's the bush. And um, if you're under 25, you probably don't know who that is. Um, here you see, yeah, Moses. And then on the right, you see Jesus also more faintly drawn um, with the, the, the man carrying his, his, his cot is actually the paralytic that he heals. So Jesus is the one standing up and the paralytic is next to him that he's healing. Um, and and um, both Moses and Jesus have something really interesting about their clothes that we need to look at. Um, I know it's harder to see Jesus. He's, he's, um, if you look really closely, though, you can see that he matches what Moses is wearing. They're wearing the dress and a hairstyle uh, of a philosopher. They are dressed like philosophers. He's wearing the, the Roman toga. If you see depictions of people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they're wearing philosophers' robes, and they have uh, sometimes they have beards. Here they're clean-shaven. But he's not depicted as a prophet. He's not depicted as a conquering king. He's not depicted as a good shepherd. He's depicted as a philosopher healing the man, Jesus is. So both Moses and Jesus in this house in the late Roman Empire, 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem, less than 200 years after the events of the book of Acts, here, a community of people who worshiped and followed Jesus Christ depicted Jesus as a philosopher. So I have to ask you, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and philosopher? We don't think about him that much, do we? Think of a, think of a, a chest of drawers, a, a dresser that you might have in your room, and think about your life being contained in this dresser, right? And in one drawer, you've got your fitness, everything you need for fitness. In another drawer, you've got uh, medical health. And then another drawer, you've got relationships and then finances. And, and then you get down and you've got your spirituality drawer. And see, for many of us, Jesus is contained within this spirituality drawer. And he's the one that we go to as our guru for how to get to heaven, He's the one that we go to uh, to get our, our sins forgiven. 
but we actually then go outside of that to go to all these other different kinds of people for advice on how to deal with finances. We need 12 rules for living, or you've got people like that, like, like Jordan Peterson and, and Marie Kondo, who helps you spark joy and get organized in your life, and David Allen, who helps you get more done. Um, people have shows, books, they make millions, and what they've done is they've, been, they've become experts at giving people really clear answers to really basic and practical pressing questions like how do I get organized and how do I get rid of stress? See, what these people are providing and what we're all looking for is a philosophy of life. Jesus the philosopher philosopher was not questioning if this chair exists, like maybe your college professor did. Ancient philosophy was concerned with a big question. How do I live a happy life? How do I live a wise and flourishing life? one with meaning and significance. To get the answer to that, you have to have a a fully ordered philosophy of life, and to get a philosophy of life, you go to a philosopher, and they teach you how to live wisely. What if I told you Jesus does not belong just in your spiritual drawer? What if I told you that we have given Jesus far too little credit and we've stopped asking him really big and really small questions about life? What if I told you Jesus is the entire dresser? He's a philosopher who has wisdom for how you should live in every single area of your life. So today we're going to see in Isaiah 11 that Jesus the Messiah is a philosopher, a sage, a wise one. And he alone possesses, teaches, models, and imparts a true philosophy of life to us. He possesses it. He teaches it. He lives it out and models it, and then he gives it to us. He imparts it to us, a philosophy of life. You ready? All right, so open your Bible. If you have it, go to Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have it, I know you have a phone. Get it on your phone. Look at it. I think we'll have the text up here, but it's great if you have your own copy as well. So first, we will see that Jesus alone possesses true wisdom. Look at Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So in these first verses, we have some imagery that is frankly very odd if we're not aware of the story of Israel, right? So this passage comes right after the prophecies of chapters 8 and 9 that Assyria was about to invade and conquer Israel. And so this, this kingship over Israel from the house of Jesse, from the house of David, was going to be cut off. There was a promise to King David that as long as his sons, his family tree, survived and was faithful and on the throne, that it would be established and Israel would be preserved. Well, that family tree was cut off at the, at the root, at the ground, and was left to a stump. At the future time, however, Jesus is, or God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, when it seems all hope is gone and when there's no life apparent, a new growth shoot will grow out of the stump. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the root of David, a reference to this passage. Um, is it a stump? Is it a root? If you, a stump is just a root above ground, right? If you go past the dirt, it's 
its root, but it's still, so if you cut it off, if you, I don't know if any of you guys have, we were just talking about this before service, if you have crepe myrtles at your house, you know the tree, the crepe myrtle, they kind of, you can trim it, and it goes up like this. They're beautiful when they're flowering, and then they're, it's terrible when the flowers are all over your, your driveway or whatever, they leave stains. And um, those suckers, I, I cleaned one up at my house and got mulch around it, and by the end of the spring, it had a little shooter, had a little wild hair growing out of the bottom. And by the end of the spring, that little shooter, one single little stick, twig, had a, had a little pink blossom on the end. It was quite cute. It's quite cute. That's what's going on. Imagine if you had, you'd cut that tree off. You're like, it's gone. Sick of cleaning up those flowers. And the next spring, whoop, dang it, it hasn't died. What seemed like it was dead is not dead. It's very, it's still alive underground. And this is what Jesus, or God is saying. It's, God is saying through the prophet is that where there didn't seem to be life anymore, it's still, the promise is still there. The promise is still underground. And, it's, and he's coming back. So, um, that's what's going on in that first verse, okay? So, this coming descendant of David is going to be a ruling king according to the promises of God. And it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What follows in Hebrew are three couplets of qualities, if we can put that back up, three qualities um, that we have. We have wisdom and understanding, um, which means he knows the best and most prudential course of action in any situation, and then founded upon that wisdom, he has counsel and might, uh, which means he can speak into another situation, and then the might, he has the power to do something about that counsel, right? And then lastly, he has full knowledge of and relationship with God. So you put all this together, you've got this, this um, prophet, or excuse me, you have this, this spirit-filled sage king who's full of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom rests on this ruler, and he has the ability to oversee and administer wise leadership. He's a sage king. There's an interesting detail here. Um, back in the day, um, before the time of Christ, the Jews who were in the Greek-speaking world translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And there's a version of the Greek, uh, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament that all of the followers of Jesus read and quoted from. And then following that, the early church all read from. Our, our translation that you have now comes from the Hebrew version. There's a Greek version. They're very similar in a lot of ways, and there are places where they are actually different. So, in the Greek version of this text um, that was used by the writers of the New Testament, it reads like this. The spirit of, of God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and godliness, and the spirit of the fear of God. So you have seven qualities. It adds godliness in there. Um, there's different translational issues, what we or translational reasons, but... Um, the point here is that we now have seven spirits. And as you know about the number seven, uh, potentially, is that in the Bible, the number seven has, there's a complete week, right? Seven days of creation. There's completeness here. There are, uh, the, the number seven is, is constantly used as a number of perfection or completion. Um, this has been a really important detail in the history of interpretation of this passage. And we're going to dive right in. We're going to talk about this. Um, we have to go back first, though, to what's the first thing the Spirit ever did in the Bible? First thing the Spirit ever did in the Bible, all the way back, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters. Um, so we have an image here. The first image is this. This is a ceiling of a church. Can you imagine? This is a mosaic. There's tiny little tiles, colored tiles that make up this huge mosaic. 
and these are the seven days of creation. And if you go in to the first day of creation, the next picture is the Spirit hovering over the waters. So we can leave that there for a minute. So we know that God, by his wisdom, created all that is. And if you think about creation, about how specifically precise the spacing of the earth from the sun has to be and the moon from the, from the earth and, and the, the balance of chemicals within our own bodies and in the atmosphere and how everything works together perfectly for the harmony of creation, for the harmony of life to exist, you know that it is a wise and careful creator who created all things. And in Christian tradition, the Spirit has, has been seen as the one who oversaw and kind of uh, uh, mediated this wise creation like a mother over a child. The Spirit hovers in wisdom over creation. And the Spirit then filled the, the different leaders of God's people, the artisans who worked in the temple to create um, the beautiful fabrics and tapestries and the different utensils in the tabernacle. And the Spirit filled Moses to lead the people and give him wisdom. And David and Solomon and the, and the judges. And the Spirit filled these people to give them wisdom. This is the Spirit of wisdom. And then if we fast forward to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, there's, a, there's another prophecy of, of the, the root of Jesse coming, this root coming. And it's a stone. It's called a stone with seven eyes. A stone with seven eyes. This is perfect vision. Seven eyes is perfect vision, and it's seen as the sevenfold spirit that gives discernment and wisdom, just like this sevenfold spirit of Isaiah 11. Well, then if you fast forward again to Revelation 5, chapter 6, there's a vision of uh, the heavenly throne room. God is sitting there, and you know what's in the midst of everybody? There's a lamb that looks as if it's been killed, Jesus, and on its head are seven horns. I've actually looked up artwork for this, and it's terrifying. I didn't want to show it. Seven horns. <laughs> I was like, ah! It's bleeding, and it's got seven horns out of its head, which means perfect rulership, and seven eyes. And it says, which are the seven spirits of God which go out into all the earth, or the sevenfold spirit of God which goes out into all the earth. The ascended Christ at the right hand of God, the possessor, it says in Acts 2 that the, spirit, the Father handed the Son the Spirit, and the, the Son then dispenses the Spirit into the world. With perfect wisdom and vision, Christ has the Spirit of wisdom to discern and to oversee and to govern the world. And one day when he comes, he'll do that perfectly. So you can understand why I didn't show the picture of the lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, with blood coming out of its side. It was like, it's, I was like, ah, I don't know about this one. Um, it's, it's kind of terrifying, which might be the point. Um, he, is, he has perfect vision. So the sevenfold spirit, if you go back here, this sevenfold spirit uh, identifies and marks the wise sage king over Israel. So throughout the Bible, the spirit of wisdom oversees creation, the, governments, the, government of God, the governance of God's people, and it, and, and it fills and indwells the king. Now, what does this sound like if we were to illustrate it? It sounds like the baptism of Jesus, doesn't it? If we go to the next image, it's an icon of Christ being baptized. You see John the Baptist, who we just heard from in the gospel. He's baptizing Jesus. The angels are watching, and the Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes to rest upon him. It comes to rest upon him. Just like it says, the spirit of wisdom will rest upon him in Isaiah 11. 
Why is this important? The key difference between the sages and gurus of the world, if you go to the self-help section of your local Barnes & Noble up here in, in um, Highland Village, there's a self-help section that you'll find. And there's a lot of people with a lot of different ideas about how you ought to live your life. They all came up with that from within themselves. And human-originated wisdom, though it might be rooted in a long tradition of many humans who have figured out actually some really good things and some true things about how life works that are worth paying attention to, at the end of the day, it's human wisdom. The only true philosophy, the only true wisdom, the one who created all things, created you, who knows how you ought to work, is God Almighty. And by his spirit of wisdom, he gives to the philosopher king the wisdom needed to then tell us how to live our lives properly, how to live wise lives for the sake of human flourishing and, and, and happiness. Jesus possesses divine wisdom, not only as the human uh, descendant of, of David, which is what's here, but also as God. He is the sole possessor of true wisdom. Jesus is. The philosophy of life that Jesus brings is based in a wisdom that lies with and originates with God himself, not just any other man. So it's superior to any you might find out there. So we've seen that Jesus possesses true wisdom from above. He's the spirit of wisdom rests upon him and is the prophesied philosopher king who was to come. In addition to possessing this wisdom, Jesus then teaches true wisdom, doesn't he? He teaches true wisdom. Um, the earliest writings we have of Jesus are the Gospels, and we have them. They were written within several decades of the life of Christ. Um, their earliest forms, little sayings, floated around before that, almost certainly. And what we have, things like an aphorism. Do you know what an aphorism is? I didn't know what an aphorism is. I had to look up the definition. I think I know what it means, but I didn't really know. It's a short summary statement about something. It means, it literally means, it's a concise step, statement of a principle. So an aphorism would be like, it's better to give than to receive. We call that maybe a proverb. It's better to give than to receive. Well, people were jotting, they're like, oh man, that's really good. I, I'm going to jot that down. I'm going to write that down somewhere. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to say it to my kids when I get home because they heard Jesus say it, okay? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's an aphorism. You cannot serve God and money. Those who are first will be last. Those who are last will be first. That's an aphorism. This is a form of teaching, these little pithy short statements that philosophers throughout the ancient world used. Jesus was just like the rest of them, except he was God in the flesh and he had the spirit of wisdom. He was teaching wise sayings to his followers. He was giving really practical advice for how to live life. Um, those who were first will be last and those who are last will be first. That's totally upside down. Um, be, don't, um, to serve others, to lay down your life for the other, to lose yourself, to lose your life that you may find your soul is not the way the world was working. When pride and money and, and prestige and honor in the Roman Empire was worth pursuing and was actually virtuous, he taught a completely different way. We assume in our culture that like, oh, you should be nice to the poor, for instance. That's not an assumption that any culture really had. They were poor because they were either cursed by the gods 
or they were unwise. Jesus said, no, it's different. We assume that because Christianity has changed the West, but that's a teaching of Jesus. So he taught true things about how the world ought to work. He taught true wisdom that then changed the landscape of the world. Another example in the, the Sermon on the Mount, we all know about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of, for they shall see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall see, or they shall inherit the earth. Um, these, these little statements, blessed are, happy and flourishing are. We've talked about this at length in our, in, in our church, that he is he's capitalizing on something that goes back to uh, the, the writing of the Psalms, Psalm 1, blessed is, is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. Uh, philosophers all around him were trying to figure out for hundreds of years how to live the blessed, the happy, the flourishing, the makarios life. And he's saying, I've got the answer. And it's not what you think it is. It's the poor in spirit. It's the meek. It's the pure in heart who are actually blessed. It's those who are, if you are persecuted, for righteousness' sake, you are actually blessed. He's saying what you think makes you happy may not be what actually makes you happy. He's teaching a specific way of life. He did this all the time. So ancient sages from both the Bible and the wider world acknowledged a philosophy of life had to be taught and it had to, to deal with every part of our life. It had to deal with relationships in, in the political world. It had to deal with relationships um, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's a political teaching that matters and has huge implications. Political life, family life. He told, us, he told them, actually, don't divorce your wife. That's a bad idea just because you don't want to be with her. At the time, a man could just do that. He said, don't do that. It's not God's design. That's a wisdom teaching that wasn't taken for granted. It might be now, but it wasn't then. Um, he taught, he taught on friendship, and he taught on how to be uh, in good relationship with people who weren't your family or your superiors. He, 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 brought, he talked about the emotional life, how to deal with anger, how to deal with jealousy, how to deal with lust. Jesus is an incredibly practical philosopher teaching us a way of life, isn't he? He's not just up here, has no impact on your life, has, has no relationship to how I ought to go to work tomorrow has no relationship about how I ought to discipline or, or, or party with my children tonight. No relation. That's, how, that's sometimes how we live. He's in this drawer. They're in that drawer. They don't meet. You don't put your socks with your underwear. Or maybe you do. He is the whole thing. He has something to say about all of it. We tracking? Does it make sense? He has very practical things to say. So not only did he then possess this wisdom as the one with the spirit of wisdom, not only did he teach this wisdom as the great teacher, philosopher, but he then modeled the wisdom. What do you do? I, they get, sometimes they get a bad rap, philosophy professors, but I remember seeing news that a philosophy professor of ethics, teaching ethics, um, got fired because of an inappropriate relationship with a student. So we... It's sad and it's unfortunate, but what we see is the disconnect between you're teaching how to live the ethical life and then you got fired from an unethical action. We know within ourselves, if you're going to be teaching this stuff, you better, it better work. Like it better actually track on, in real life. And in the ancient world, they had these things called schools. 
They invented the schools for this purpose. Schools were invented because a philosopher and all of his little disciples would get together and they'd live together in community. It was the original boarding school for kids who couldn't behave at home. They put them all in the same community and they said, we're all going to try. This is the school of Plato. This is the school of the Stoics. This is the school of the Neo-Aristotelians. And they're going to all try to live according to the philosophy of life of this philosopher and see if it works. And there sometimes people would become disillusioned and they'd leave. And well, what is Jesus doing? Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what are they doing? It's the school of Jesus. They're watching him walk it out. So Jesus is sitting at dinner with a guy and a bunch of his friends who are really powerful religious elites. And this is a pretty cool situation to be in. And his disciples are watching. And a prostitute, a woman of the city, walks up to Jesus and she falls down at his feet and she weeps on his feet because she knows who she's meeting. And she's wiping the dirt off his, the dust off his feet with her hair. And all the guys sitting around the table are going, if this if this teacher, philosopher, knew who the heck was on his feet, he wouldn't be letting her do this. He must be either out of his mind or not paying attention. Excuse me, not paying attention. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he goes, you got it backwards. You guys haven't given me water for my face. You haven't washed my feet. You haven't given me anything. She has great faith and great humility and has come to worship at my feet. She is actually truly blessed. And he shows mercy and he forgives her sins. And he cares nothing for the prestige of the elites around him. He lives out and models what he teaches about lowliness, doesn't he? Doesn't he? What kind of man is this? And he says, someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Well, you can't really mean that, Jesus. I mean, like, someone hits me, clearly like that's against the law and I should have retribution. And No, 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 if someone steals from you, don't try to get it back. Give him, your, give him, give him more clothes, actually. Well, come on, it's like, I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna put a police report in, right? Like, Jesus, everything was taken away from him. He was beaten, mocked, scorned, and shamed. And he was silent. God will defend me. Pilate said, just defend yourself. These people are saying that you're, blaspheming, and I can't even find a charge against you. Just defend yourself. Don't you know I can, I can send, I have authority to get you killed? He's silent. He lived out in the darkest, hardest part of his life what he taught. It's totally consistent. And in fact, that's why the Gospels are written, by the way. They're, they're written to show us that his teaching and his way of life were then vindicated by the resurrection the truly blessed happy one is the one who's now sitting at the right hand of the Father in full felicity and full blessing and full acceptance before God. So it vindicates everything he just taught and lived out. Therefore, imitate him, even unto death because of how it turns out. You see that? The school of Jesus works, and Jesus showed it with his own followers, with his ragtag group of dudes. And I love that. I just skipped two paragraphs. That's okay. We can keep going. We read it in, actually, I do want to go here. We read it today in, in, in Romans chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, but we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If you were to go on Instagram and have some influencer tell you how to live your life, they'd be like, you know, make sure that you don't take care of yourself and, and make sure that you don't 
you don't look out for yourself and that you only look out for the sake of others. No, it's, all, it's, it's the other way around. I'm not saying don't take care of yourself. Obviously, be healthy. But this is saying don't work just for your own pleasure and for your own entertainment and your own good. Right? Why? For Christ didn't please himself. He didn't work for his own gain. Because it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus modeled exactly what we're being told to to do. So, Jesus possesses wisdom. Sevenfold spirit of wisdom rests upon him. Jesus teaches this wisdom. There's snippets of sayings we see throughout. There's long blocks of teachings. Um, Then he models this philosophy of life by actually engaging in life, in relationships, in, in situations where it's, he's put to the test and he passes, he does what he says, and then he's vindicated. So he possesses, teaches, models. And then finally, you know what's great about this? He doesn't keep it to himself. It's not something that we have to like, it's not a mystery that we have to try and get. Jesus imparts true wisdom to us. He imparts true wisdom to us. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 11, back in our main text, starting in verse 6. We were supposed to read verses 3 through 5 for uh, the last point, but I apologize. Here we go, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. Okay, here we go. We have a little cow, a wolf, a lamb, a leopard, a goat, and a fattened calf, a chonky one. And there's a little child. They're all like, you ever seen someone walking into like four dogs on one leash? You know, it's like you've got a little child with a leash and it's got a splitter and there's like, and all these different livestock and wild animals. And they're all like, all right, walk us, little Timmy. They're all just hanging out. This image of of total tranquility, total docility, total peace. This is what's going on here. The cow and the bear shall graze. So the cow, we know, grazes. But the bear? I guess the bear eats berries, but the bear also eats fish. So what's going on here? Okay. The young shall lie down together, peace. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. So the lion doesn't eat animals anymore. It eats straw. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. No danger of being bit. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Best, one of the best phrases in the whole Bible. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much water is on top of the ocean? All of it. Right? How much of the earth does the knowledge of the Lord cover? Same amount, all of it. It's it's identified together. If there's a square inch of land, it has the knowledge of the Lord in it. That's what's going to happen. So, this scene portrays a world that has been totally reoriented. Obviously, this is imagery. I'm not saying like, you know, your child is going to walk animals in the new creation. Maybe, I don't know. But conflict has ceased, right? There's peace in the world. The knowledge of the Lord covers the entire world. So this is the picture of a world that has come under the stewardship and jurisdiction of the wise sage king. 
He has inundated the world with the knowledge of God and with true wisdom. So everything he taught and everything he modeled, the school of Jesus, now encompasses the world. And the result is peace and flourishing. Shalom. Wholeness. He has imparted his wisdom to bring about right relationships, healthy and flourishing societies and nations, and eyes have been opened to the true God. The one who possesses the Spirit now baptizes us and the world with the Spirit and imparts that wisdom to the world. I love this quote from St. Jerome. He says, Therefore, without Christ, no one can be wise or intelligent or a giver of good advice or strong or knowledgeable or pious or full of the fear of God. (laughs) All these things that you might want, you can't do apart from Christ. How do we get that? You mean he imparts it to us, but what does that mean? This is crucial. The Apostle Paul tells us to have this mind in us that is ours in Christ Jesus, that mind of humility, that philosophy of life that says, I must be lowly and consider others more highly than myself. It's not just somewhere out there for me to attain. It's mine in Christ Jesus. See this? It's mine in Christ Jesus because he has imparted it to me by his Holy Spirit. This is crucial when comparing the philosophy of Christ to the philosophies of the world. If your philosophy of life doesn't include a supernaturally transformed heart, then your strategies, your tactics, your rules, your gurus, all the books you read will become an identity to perform rather than an identity to receive. If it's not a transformed heart, it's an identity to perform and not an identity to perceive or to receive. And it will be a burden that we can never hold up rather than a joy. In Isaiah 11, we've seen that Jesus is the great philosopher king who possesses, teaches, uh, models, and imparts true wisdom. And the question is then, why would you not follow his way of life? Why would you not go to him for his wisdom? A lot of times it's because it's not easy. And it grates against what I really want to do. There are other joys that call to me. There are other forms of happiness that really entice me. I'd rather buy that thing that I really want because it makes me feel good than give that money to someone who doesn't have anything. C.S. Lewis says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Other philosophies are pleasing us because we are giving them the power over us. We need to stop going to worldly gurus who don't have wisdom from above. They peddle in cheap joys and incomplete philosophies. They might offer slivers of wisdom, but only one wisdom really leads us to true and lasting joy. Today is the day to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and philosopher. To the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.